save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, this is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World. My guest today is Dr. Peter Lee. Dr. Lee specializes in East Asian politics with an emphasis in the domestic politics, foreign policy, and environmental governance of the People's Republic of China. His research covers elite politics of China, Northeast Asian security, U.S.-China relations, and China's environmental and animal welfare politics. Dr. Lee's research and published articles over the past decades has shown just how important meat consumption has become to the China's Chinese consumer, and that in 2012, China began to be the world's biggest animal farming nation, from wildlife and wildlife markets, tiger farms, to pork, beef, and I think chicken. As of November 2019, globally, we are now seeing the dangers play out in real time when humans and wildlife intersect in novel ways that are not present in the wild and that humans are not prepared for how these unique intersections create, create a zoonotic Pandora's box, as the world has learned from a wildlife wet market in Wuhan, China, to a new highly contagious virus to humans. This virus jumped from what we presumed is a bat to an intermediary host into a global crisis, a quickly spreading pandemic of the novel coronavirus SARS-2 and its associated respiratory disease COVID-19, which now has the entire world in its grip. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Peter and welcome you and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. It's great to be here because we need, especially here in the U.S., we need a little, under a lot of understanding of what's going on. There is a lot of stigma going on. There's a lot of vitriol on the um, social media platforms and angst and anxiety about what, about China. And, you know, to be fair, a lot of this is stereotypes and presumptions. So... With you today, I hope we have the opportunity to clarify some of these stereotypes and bring in, you know, some histories, some cultural um, aspects of what was China before and how it's changed in contemporary times. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today, but uh, let's start by a little background on you and how this relates to what is relevant today with the the virus. We'll take this step by step. So tell us about you. Uh, <laughs> that's a great, great question. Uh, I came to the United States uh, 33 years ago as a student uh, attending graduate school. And of course, I was an international relations major. Um, but my experience in the United States uh, changed my uh, perspective uh, on a lot of things. So I started to uh, do study on animal welfare policy, uh, animal law, you know, related subjects. Uh, that's how 
I changed from an international politics, uh, you know, student uh, um, researching and to animal welfare policy research. But of course, I'm still doing international relations, you know, issues as well. So that's my background. And of course, in the last uh, 20 years, I have spent a lot of time uh, studying animal welfare policies, animal, you know, welfare crisis in China and in East Asian countries, other countries. Uh, so that's uh, why I have also spent some time studying China's wildlife policy and how, you know, China developed a, a wildlife breeding program, uh, wildlife trade, uh, especially uh, the part of the trade that produce uh, for the country's exotic food market. So we're going to be learning the um, the basic differences between our culture, the West, and our burgeoning animal rights, animal welfare, that no animal should ever die at the hands of human, to a, a very different culture. So you came to the U.S., I think, in the late 80s, and you had some yes. defining experiences that changed your outlook on wildlife. I believe there was a story about a squirrel and seeing yes. wildlife out there, which was a new experience for you. How did that yes. form this this desire to understand and study wildlife welfare and change things in China, or at yes. least understand uh, them, if not change them. Yeah. Yes. You know, when I came to the United States, I was uh, very young. Uh, and of course, the first day I was on campus, I went to Syracuse University, and I encountered, early in the morning, I saw squirrels playing on the ground. And I was so fascinated by these small, you know, animals that are, they were not afraid of me. So I said, oh my God, this, you know, I, I never saw squirrels uh, in China. So I was completely fascinated with uh, with them. But the, the defining moment that has changed my, you know, thinking about uh, human-animal relations was uh, the opportunity uh, 40 of all of us go into an American farmer's house. So this farmer was a great gentleman. Uh, he, we help him. There's one segment of the, you know, uh, event in his home to help him, you know, pick apples from the trees. And he had about 20,000 apple trees. And he asked us, you know, he told us, leave five apples on every tree. Don't pick them. So I raised my hand and asked why you want to waste the uh, five apples, you've got 20,000 trees here, and how many apples are you going to waste it? And he said, young man, none of the apples will be wasted, because in central uh, New York, we are so close to the Great Lakes, we've got a lot of snow in winter, you know, can last for three years, uh, three months, so I want to make sure that the birds have food for the winter. So when I heard that, I was shocked, I was emotionally conquered, I was very much touched. So my, my thinking started to change. You know, in the past, when we were in China, we were told that uh, America was a capitalist country. Uh, the property owners, the capitalists uh, had, are merciless. They don't care about the welfare of the people. But then I started to think, well, this gentleman doesn't look like a typical capitalist. He even cared about the welfare of the birds. So since then on, so I started to pay more attention uh, to animal issues, animal protection. That's why I 
strongly support the cultural education exchanges between different countries. So you get to be exposed to different ideas about nature, how we ha can become a better person. So that's the, the defining moment of my, you know, my transformation from a high politics student to, you know, animal welfare. You know, well, this, a that's, a, that's a defining moment. And a lot of which we Westerners, Americans, especially today, our youth today, take for granted. So this is why it's really wonderful to be able to speak with you. So why don't you fill us in a little bit on, so we can understand, our audience can understand, the difference between, we, we understand our wildlife laws for the most part, mm -hmm. but what are the wildlife laws in China and how um, did they end up benefiting businesses to exploitation rather than protection and then we'll move into through the course of this conversation how your work is trying to change that attitude that's a great question you know there there is a lot of misperception going on uh in the west or in in country including the united states about uh, uh china about uh, uh the human nature relations in china in fact wildlife eating is not part of china's mainstream food culture so in other words, majority of the people in China, they do not eat snakes or pangolins or other, you know, what I call heavy, heavy wildlife uh, animals. Uh, only small number of people. And also this so-called wildlife consumption habit, even today, is limited to a small a fraction of the population in China. I would call these people the rich and the powerful people who are better off economically and who want to show off because they can they are able to eat these animals so that they are more important, they're more successful. So that's one thing I want to, you know, clear the misperception. Now, another uh, thing I want to uh, uh, try to clear is this. Uh, there are people, you know, believing that China has a culture of wildlife consumption. Let me say it this way. China in the past was very much like the rest of the world. There were people eating wildlife animals because of survival, right? For survival. Uh, but uh, even in China's ancient time, China had a, a recorded history of close to 3,000 years. So if you read through the records of China's history, you know, wildlife consumption was not part of the mainstream food culture. But of course, in ancient China, in the remote areas, in the less developed areas and in times of, you know, food, you know, uh, security crisis, there were people consuming wildlife, yes, but not uh, uh, mainstream uh, food culture. Now, another thing I want to say, wildlife, exotic food in China or wildlife eating can be divided into two parts, wildlife food. One part is what I call heavy wildlife. This, this includes snakes, pangolins, uh, Siberian cats, or bear paws, or tiger meat. So this is called a heavy wildlife meat. Now there is also another called light wildlife meat, like uh, uh, something you know you can catch in the rice field, in the streams, in the waters, uh, like uh, you know frogs, uh, freshwater turtles. Now a lot of people in China have eaten this light wildlife animals. 
but they don't eat it on a daily basis, still not on a, a, a frequent basis. You know, peasants would go to the mountains or go to the rice fields to catch some of these, you know, small animals and send to the market. There is no hoarding. There is no concentration of a large number. So relatively, this small number of you know, light wildlife animals are safe. But today's problem is because China has been, you know, making wildlife industry like the industrialized, concentrated, you know, production. And that's the way the problem, you know, has come from. So this shifted to what? A Chinese model that has become heavily dependent on meat consumption? Uh, I would say this way, you know, actually China is the world's biggest animal farming country since 1991. In 1991, China overtook the United States in livestock production. So China today produces on an annual basis about 80 million tons of meat. I'm just talking about the pork, beef, mutton or chicken. So that 80, more than 80 million tons of meat. Besides that, China is also the world's biggest ocean fishing country. And China is also the world's biggest aquatic farming country. So if you combine, you know, livestock meat and the fishery, you know, fish and all this, you know, shellfish, all this, an average Chinese consumes much, much more meat or animal protein than the average you know, uh, then the majority of the world's 7.5 billion people. So there is no shortage in wild, uh, in meat in China. You know, I have to say this, you know, a few days, uh, about uh, one week ago, two weeks ago, there is a Fox News host called Jesse Waters. Yeah. He, claimed, he claimed that China, the people in China eat wildlife animals raw because they have a hunger. China had a famine. People don't have food, so they have to eat the wildlife, and that was wrong. You know, China has no no food crisis, and they have no problem in getting enough animal protein from, you know, livestock, meat, or fish. Only a very small number of people eating wildlife, not because they need to, not because they need, need it for survival. It's because small number of people want to show off. That's one. Another thing, why people eat the wild, wildlife meat is because the wildlife traders have been promoting this wildlife meat as something like good for your health, good for your sex, and good for fighting disease. So it's the industry, it's the wildlife breeders and the traders have been promoting this product to, to the rich and the powerful. So that brings us to the, the sticky wicket, the conundrum here, the Chinese uh-huh. wildlife protection laws. So in reading through um, many of your published papers that the China has had wildlife protection laws on the books yes. for quite some time, but it yes. seemed through the state or the way Chinese government and politics, um, I'm hoping you can help us understand, works, that this was used by these wildlife promoters and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, meat consumption businesses to promote eating more meat. So they use the wildlife protection laws to benefit more of these unsavory tactics than to actually protect or conserve wildlife. How did, how did that happen? Yes. You know, China 
is the only you know top you know country that does not have animal protection law. Uh, it's behind the advanced countries, the animal protection lawmaking for 198 years. If we use 1822 as the uh, sample or comparison, because in that year, the British Parliament adopted a law called the Martins Act for protecting, you know, horses, you know, uh, and the donkeys. If we use that as the sample or comparison, China is behind for what, 198 years. Now, so, but China has one so-called animal protection law in quotation mark or on the book, as you said, you know, nicely. Uh, that was the wildlife protection law adopted in 1988. It came into effect in 1989. Why China adopt that, adopted that law? It was because China joined CITES. Uh, okay. So that as one of the, as one of the requirements for joining CITES, the members countries need to legislate domestically, you know, to ensure wildlife protection. So the law was adopted in 1989, but then law since then, because the law had several major flaws. One of the major flaws was that the law, the entire law, you know, spent a lot of the, uh, you know, articles talking about the importance of using wildlife life animals for breeding purposes, for economic development purposes. That's why we call that a law, not a law for protecting animals in the wild, but a law for protecting the businesses using wildlife, you know, as a resource for development purposes. So that's the problem of the law. So the law has been toothless in deterring or going after you know, abusers or violators, but it has been a strong, you know, protection and endorsement for the business to use wildlife animals for economic purposes. Okay, so to segue away a moment to be able to rejoin this back to CITES, uh, the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Flora and Fauna. So, uh, recently, China announced a full-on ban of these wildlife mm-hmm. markets. And mm-hmm. evidently, somewhere in between all of this, there was a rise in wildlife in these wet markets. And this is what mm-hmm. we're allegedly presuming that the virus came from. Um, mm-hmm. We will know in history, eventually, understanding exactly how this virus transferred from one animal to another and into people. So, CITES recently announced, excuse me, China announced a ban on wildlife markets and CITES uh, sent that notification out to all the party members. So, how will China, when we think in terms of its history, one-child nation policy and the ability of the People's Republic of China to implement strongly these laws as opposed to um, asking people to abide by it voluntarily, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How is that going to affect China's future and these markets? Yeah, I would say we, we all understand that China has 
the strongest government in the world. If not the strongest government, it's one of the most, um, one of the strongest governments in the world. If a Chinese government wants to do something, if it, if it has the political determination to do something, it can a- achieve anything. Because of course, we know that China is a one party, you know, state and the uh, government, the communist party have absolute power. Right. So if they want to enforce the law, it will be ended. So that there, there is no problem about that. So I'm just uh, uh, hoping that uh, this, you know, ban uh, issued on February the 24th by Chinese National People's Congress can become a permanent and lasting policy, not just, uh, you know, for during the time of the crisis, will will be, you know, uh, uh, will be carried out forever. Um, so regarding, you know, the uh, society, whether society will conform with the part, uh, government's decision, and I would say absolutely. If the party is of one mind, the society will, will, will fo- follow. Especially, you mentioned about the one-child policy, a one-child generation. China has a younger generation who is a complete different species you know, from the parents and the grandparents. Now, this younger generation in China, they are very much like Americans, American young people. They, they, they had no correction of uh, the times in the past when people were, uh, were without a foot, went hungry. So they live in much, much better material conditions. And many of these young kids grew up with the pets. So they have less tolerance for you know animal cruelty, and a lot of these young kids, you know, sh- you know, object to wildlife eating. So I believe, you know, in the long run, if the government has the political will to end the trade, and the society will go along. But of course, well, of course, there will always be resistance from the businesses, from the traders. They will always be violated, right? Right. So I, I, I don't worry about too much about that one. But um, let, let's spend a moment on that, because from what we understand through illegal wildlife tracking networks and international law enforcement, it is the underground trade, yes. the poaching, and the cartels, which is very big business. Will they be forced or brought into line by China's policy? And there was one line in uh China's statement to CITES that they will Mm -hmm. aggressively um, punish people Mm -hmm. beyond what's currently allowed by law. That, to me, is a scary line when you think Mm -hmm. of a state government that has the power to Mm -hmm. um, strongly um, convince its population to turn the tables and you know whether it, it if we go back to there was a wonderful documentary on one child nation and what the people ended up having to do from state level all the way down to local levels in in turning people who didn't necessarily believe this policy but enforced it because they had no choice so will that will that promote violence or do you think it will actually with the the younger generation of Chinese convincing the older generations that there is no longer food scarcity, that Mm -hmm. 
um, farming practices, breeding practices can be changed to mm-hmm. be more conducive to animal welfare. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, I can give you. Uh, uh, I would say, you know, the uh, one child policy, you know, the uh, enforcement of that policy uh, is a very complicated matter. But I have two other good examples to say that if China's government is determined to enforce law, uh, it will be very successful because, for example, gun ownership. It is illegal to own guns in China and the Chinese government enforced that, you know, uh, law very strictly. Right? So that's why in China, gun-related violence is almost zero. Right? And uh, the drug, right? Uh, China imposed, uh, you know, law against, uh, you know, drug, you know, uh, sales. Right? That's why China has a very, very uh, small number of, you know, the lawbreakers, I would say, that are, are risking the, the, the prison terms, you know, to do uh, drug-related uh, uh, activities. So, you know, na- nationally, China is very safe, right, because gun, street gun control. And the young people, you know, overwhelming majority of young people never had, you know, any exposure to any drugs because of the law enforcement. So no negotiation, no argument has to be uh, enforced. So I have always believed if the Chinese government can use the same kind of, you know, enforcement, uh, uh, you know, determination, uh, as they use against drug, uh, uh, guns and uh, uh, drugs, they should be able to, you know, crack down on uh, wildlife, uh, uh, you know, trafficking or wildlife trade. But I have to say also another point I want to make is there will always be violators when you uh, outlaw, you know, any anything, right? right. Uh, but but that would be make much much easier because when you go after, when you go after violate of lawbreakers. It is easy to go after lawbreakers then to ensure, you know, law compliance, you know, in a business which is still legal but should have been, you know, outlawed. Okay, so with this implementation of this ban, in your experience, are we seeing any of this shutting down of these wet markets? Yes. Uh, the first order was issued on January 24th, I believe, by three administrative agencies under the Prime Minister's office. Uh, and then one month later, February 24th, this you know, administrative order was elevated to the national legislation. So when the National People's Congress issued a, a decision to impose a comprehensive ban on February 24th, so the level of the of the policy right become like a, a law, uh, and we have seen you know large number of the uh, uh, businesses uh, have been shut down. I mean the uh, wet wet markets uh, have been closed, and uh, trade you know came to a stop, and uh, restaurants uh, could not uh, serve um, the wildlife uh, meat. Right, so you, we see you know a lot of actions going on in China. Yes. Okay, so now this brings another point, that this ban did not include um, the use of wildlife for food or for traditional Chinese medicine. Earlier you had said that the use of wildlife in TCM was not 
culturally accepted for a long time. I believe a lot of that changed during the rule of Mao and the Great Famine and, um, you know, people started bringing this in. So how does that, do you think, going to affect uh, medicinal use of, let's say, tiger bone wine or the lion bone trade coming from Africa or the illegal poaching of various wildlife and international illegal trade through these underground illegal markets? How do you think that's going to be affected by the average? How do you think the average Chinese person is going to be affected and will that change their mindset? Great question. I have to say this. Um, China's wildlife farming industry is a gigantic business operation in China. It was created in the last 40 years, 40 years ago. So it's not anything that happened in China's past. So industrialized wildlife farming started in the early 1980s. Now today, this has become a gigantic business. It, it has five components. The biggest part of the wildlife breeding is breeding for fur. China's fur animal farming is the world's biggest. It produced a revenue of about 360 billion yuan. 360 billion. That's about 81 billion US dollars. So that's the biggest part, which is the fur animal farming. The second part, the second biggest part is breeding for the exotic food market. This is the one that's been banned by the National People's Congress. Now, this part of the uh, uh, activity produced a revenue in 2016. That's the latest official figure we had in 2016 of 125 billion yuan, which is equal to about 20 billion US dollars. Uh, Now, the third part is breeding for traditional Chinese medicine or TC, uh, 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 TCM. Now, this part produced a revenue of uh, about, uh, you know, 5 billion yuan every year. Now, the other two pieces are, you know, breeding for display for pet, right, for the zoos and those facilities, and then for laboratory use, like monkeys, for testing purposes. So this industry has a five piece. Now, today is only targeting the piece for the exotic market because, you know, SARS and uh, the COVID-19 both uh, were traced back to the uh, wildlife uh, uh, wet market, you know, for the food, uh, for the restaurant. So that's why this part has been the target. Now, there is a growing consensus in China today, uh, you know, regarding uh, the, the risk of the animal uh, wildlife farming, especially for food. Um, and I would say the society is ready to accept if this part sh- should be, you know, shut down. Right? But I'm sure, you know, the, you know, personally, I would say all the other pieces also have a huge problem. It could be potentially, you know, dangerous and risky. So, um, you know, we're going to step away for a little break now. And what I'd like to do when we come back is bring in the work you do in terms of animal rights and welfare and how that is having an effect currently and what's going on. So, folks, stick with us and we will be right back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. I'm Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World with my guest, Dr. Peter Lee. So uh, during the first part of this program, we covered as much as we could in the time allowed about the history of China and its eating of meat and wildlife consumption, that it is a relatively new aspect of the population and what's been going on. So now, Peter, you we, you work with Humane Society International, China mm-hmm. Policy, and you're also a professor at Houston downtown, Houston University downtown, and you teach a lot of classes in terms of policy and what is going on. So what are you doing now in terms of teaching and raising awareness not only to Chinese students in here, but American students of how you're working to change the China mindset and to bring in wildlife, animal welfare. You know, animal rights, as I understand, could be a bigger step, but at least the welfare so that we don't end up with situations like, even if illegal, um, and, you know, off the books, wildlife markets that create situations where animals 
caught from the wild are stressed out, stacked on top mm-hmm. of each other, allowed to commingle and create, you know, a Pandora's box for mm-hmm. a zoonotic disease to jump from one species to another and to infect people. So how is the work you're doing actually literally going about changing the wildlife welfare and animal welfare laws? Uh, in the last 12 years, since I started my work for uh, Human Society International, I have had a lot of opportunities to travel to China on a yearly basis. Uh, sometimes I go there uh, three times a year. Uh, the most uh, year I went there uh, five times. Uh, we have a project in China, uh, for example, uh, supporting animal protection organizations, assisting these organizations uh, when they are you know, uh, outreaching the community, going to university college, uh, university colleges, going to high schools. Uh, we also assist the Chinese, you know, animal protection organizations and campaigns. For example, in 2012, an American company wanted to introduce rodeo events into China. So they want to stage the world's biggest rodeo show in Beijing's Olympic Stadium. So when the Chinese animal activists learned about that program, so they contacted us yeah, at uh, Human Society International and asked us for help. How can they stop it? So we connect them with an organization in Chicago specializing uh, in opposition against uh, rodeo performance, uh, rodeo events in the United States. So we, ha- we helped you know, organize three press events in China and then the organization succeeded in getting the Chinese government canceling the rodeo event in Beijing. So that's one example I can give. Another example, uh, a company in Spain wanted to introduce Spanish bullfighting into China in 2009, uh, 2010. And also we assisted the Chinese animal protection organization to get that idea uh, shut down uh, because you know, the, the argument was this, the Chinese argument, we already got enough animal cruelty going on in our country. We don't want more from outside the country. So please don't introduce those into China. <laughs> so perhaps it was a nefarious um, action on other countries trying to take advantage of what they felt was a Chinese attitude toward wildlife. And as you'd said, yeah. these younger generations are of a very different mindset. Are these younger generations also helping to convince their elder generations of this change and is it working? I think they, are, they have been trying to convince the, the elders. Uh, uh, to some extent they have some success uh, but uh, you know as the more and more younger people you know going into the uh, leadership positions you know in China uh, we see, you know, a greater influence from this younger generation in China. Uh, for example, you know, you know, there are more, more pets in China today. When I was in China, uh, I grew up in China when uh, Mao Zedong was the leader. So he discouraged, discouraged people from having pets. But today you go to, you know, anywhere in China, there were so many pets, right? A lot of pet-owned families. So they were. You know, I, I basically say that uh, China is actually in a civil war between people, the, the bigger community of people who love animals, who love pets, and the s- smaller 
you know, group of people who do not like companion animals. So they have been you know, constantly fighting, you know, with each other. And I'm sure a lot of our audience may have heard about uh, the Yulin Dog Meat Festival in China. Uh, every summer, uh, in a small city in southwest China, that city, you know, celebrate the dog killing, eating dog meat. But that particular festival has been condemned by the Chinese people all along. Right, the the voice is so 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 strong. Right, so if we look at China today, it's more like, uh, you know, the uh, animal people are on the offensive. You know, those people who brutalize animals, who all who use animals for profits, are on the defensive. So you see who is standing on, you know, on the right side of the history. This is this is exciting news. So um, it leads me to another question that. Um, in light of what we've discussed of these changes and the outbreak in Wuhan and how quickly China responded to contain it, um, has, has this outbreak had an effect on China and their welfare policies and their view toward these markets? I'm talking the populace, not just the state government and the ban that's been in place, but the populace. Yes, I would uh, I would say so. Now, I just talked to um, uh, an animal protection organization in Wuhan, the epicenter of the coronavirus. Because that's a huge city of eleven million people, and a lot of you know, you know, families having pets. You know, some, about five million people left the city before the city was uh, was locked down, and uh, some of those people who left the city left the pets behind in the apartments because people live in China, they all live in high rises, right? And so we we found out, you know, that uh, the Chinese animal protection activists, you know, animal lovers in that city started to go into those apartments. The owners are not there, but the pets are left behind. Go to those, you know, apartments, started to feed and care for those pets. And this has, you know, brought out outpouring sympathy from across the country, across China. So every day, you know, people from Shanghai, from Beijing, from other, you know, places, you know, send the donations, send the dog food, send the litters, send the cat food to the organization for them to to send to those apartments where the owners are out there, but the dogs and cats needs to be catered for. And also to the hundreds of small, you know, sheltering operations, you know, across the city and across the province. Uh, the sympathy, the, the support, you know, it's just so touching. I see all those photos, uh, you know, a batch of, uh, you know, dog food, you know, at the railway station for the volunteers to pick up and send to the, you know, uh, the shelter. Uh, it's very touching. So can we dispel the rumor that rumors that are going around on our American social media that people are throwing their pets out of windows in fear that they will contract this virus from their their dogs or the cats, which we know cannot happen? Uh, I have to say this, you know, uh, we have not seen a lot of those, that kind of cases in China because people have pets. They see the pets as their families. But there are one or two sporadic cases that we see the photos that the you know cats and dogs were thrown out. You know, here's the situation. You know, oftentimes, 
there are always people who want to utilize this kind of disaster to make the case. So I cannot rule out the possibility that uh, you know this particular family who throw the dog or cat out to, out the out of the window was not necessarily driven by the government, but also driven by one of the members in the family who had long wanted to get rid of the dog or cat. Now he or she used that opportunity to force, you know, the spouse or the other family members to do the unthinkable. So we have to be. Um, I have always been. I have always argued that if we want to stand stand up against animal cruelty, we have to use accurate information. Right. Otherwise, we are not doing the job. Yes, there are people in China still brutalize animals, just like in any other societies. But the voice for protected animals is much, much, much louder uh, than those voices from some kind of a you know dark corner of the place. Well, that's that. This is very heartening to hear, and I'm hoping our listeners are truly paying attention. That we need to dispel. And stop the stigmatization of not only in this country and elsewhere around the world of the Chinese people, and stop the vitriol because it will not help. In fact, it, what it does is back people up against the wall, and、um, that always brings out the worst in everyone's nature. So, what、yes. you're telling us is that there is a huge movement in Chinese youth to、yes. turn. This mindset around is there has there been a rise in、uh, sanctuaries? Yes, in China, you know,、uh, we have been、uh, helping organizing several conferences in China、uh, for the gathering of animal people、uh, across the country. The first,、uh, you know, China had only one animal protection organization in 1992, which was the China Small Animal Protection Association. Created in 1992,、uh, at that time, mainland China—that's the only one. But today, if you go to any major cities or provincial capitals, or even sub-provincial, you know, cities, you see animal protection organizations. You see, you know, shelters run by the people. You see rescue groups. You you see volunteer, you know, associations for helping stray animals. That's why you know the voices, the community. Uh, is getting bigger、uh, in China. Is, the,、so、is, is there a rise in veterinary students and studies? Yes, yes. Yeah, there have been so many, you know,、uh, animal hospitals, you know, uh, uh, you know, opened in the country. I, I tell you one thing about my,、uh, you know, when I came to the United States to study, I, I had to bring my my cat with me. Why I had to do that? But thirty some years ago, because at that time. There was no animal protection organization, no shelter we we knew about, so we had to bring bring them along to the United States. So I brought four of my cats from Beijing to the United States because I don't know who can take care of them, right? But today, you know, there are so many shelters, so many operations. Right, it's much much easier.、Yeah. This is very heartening news. So we have、um, you know, some time left today. Where? What would you like our audiences to know, and furthermore, how we can help China in this time of crisis? Even though we're all focused on the anxiety and the crisis that is spreading across the United States and Europe with this virus, there are some major lessons that we can learn 
from this, um, you know, from social distancing to, you know, animal welfare, animal rights. How are you going about with your work and your even your personal or professional relationships to encourage and change this mindset and suggestions of what my international audience um, that we're speaking to today can help support rather than continue this negative dialogue? Uh, that's a great question. You know, I say, I have to say that there is a lot of misperception. Uh, I always argue that uh, the, the bond between humans and the cat animals, like the dogs and cats, is not Western. Is you know, trans, trans, it's transcultural. You know, Chinese love the dogs just like we do in the United States. So we have to understand that one. Now, regarding the, uh, the coronavirus, the COVID-19, which took place in Wuhan, and I see some of the, uh, you know, politicians and people who spread misinformation, uh, insisting on calling the virus as a Chinese virus, that's very dangerous, that's misleading. Because what happened, you know, in Wuhan, it's not because it has nothing to do with, you know, the Chinese people are to race. It has a lot to do with the mode of production. Whenever you force a large number of animals, whether it's, you know, large dog, or it's wild in unnatural, concentrated feeding operations, going to have a problem. So we have to do this uh, for all our audience and Americans, especially politicians and the media people. We have to ask ourselves, do we have a uh, mode of production in the United States or in India or in other We force a large number of animals in a concentrated you know, feeding system that deny, we deny them welfare, right? Uh, but we have that, right? We right. could be the next source of epidemic, right? Exactly. Do we decimate wildlife animals? Do we do a trophy hunting, slaughtering animals around the world? Right? Do we eat wildlife animals like a rattlesnake, uh, alligators? Right? Uh, we could also have a problem. So I want to say this, you know. Uh, so let's not, uh, you know, call this, you know, Chinese virus. Uh, let's, you know, face it. So this is, the, you know, something that we need to take into consideration. As well as the world, we still export animals in one way or another. The, the human race as a whole, you know, has to, you know, think about, you know, what we should be doing. Well, it, it takes us right back to where we started. You know, as the human race, whatever ethnicity, uh, culture, um, country you live in, as we increase our development and encroach further and further and fracture wildlife habitats the intersection between unknown animals and unknown pathogens is going to increase and possibly jump over to create zoonotic soups of viruses that we humans have no natural immunity to so one of the current things is this is so much like the flu well the flu we have antibodies too when a virus a zoonotic virus comes from wildlife and jumps across into a host species that then allows it to jump across from a, a molecular point of view into humans 
that is an issue of human wildlife intersection in ways that is unprecedented today. So you're very correct. This is not a Chinese virus. This is not a foreign virus. This is a virus that could happen anywhere we collect and um, concentrate many animals without good welfare, without good um, uh, rules, whether it's the United States or China, in their care and, and, and feeding and in the slaughtering of them. So some say, yes. okay, it's a reason to stop eating meat. You know, that's not going to happen across the board overnight. Meat eating is not going to go away. There are many cultures that, you know, subsist on meat eating and don't have a problem. It's the industrializing of these concentrated food lots that are creating the issues, whether it's here in the U.S. or China or anywhere else. So we have a few, we have some time left, Um, a couple of minutes. What would be the takeaway you would like our audiences to hear from today, to know? Uh, What I want to say that, uh, uh, yes, you know, China has, you know, one of the biggest, uh, you know, challenges in animal protection area uh, is uh, China is really a comprehensive challenge because China is a continental sized nation has the population, even a fraction of the population, um, you know, should do something against animals or wildlife. That could be an enormous number. So we have to understand that one. But also we have to say that uh, uh, the humanity, the human race, and hope, uh, we owe a lot, you know, to nature. Um, you know, you, if you look at the uh, epidemic, no country. Uh, monopolizes the outbreak of all different kinds of epidemics. I believe in the last two centuries, uh, hundreds of epidemics broke out in different countries on different continents. Uh, so as long as we um, uh, continue, as you just mentioned, you know, certain practices like industrializing animal farming, we're going to have a problem. So this is, this is it, folks. What we need to do as a human race we need to take a paradigm shift as to how we interact with our non-human fellow earthlings in terms of coexistence, um, management, and how we decide to use them, utilize them or not to support us as food or as companions or any number of ways that we we utilize animals. We didn't even get into the whole zoo and trophy hunting aspect there's there wasn't room for that today but those two also have those aspects of how we use wildlife also must change so what covid-19 absolutely so what this current pandemic that has a lot of people everywhere around the world terribly frightened and anxiety and is affecting and killing a large proportion of our global population. This is, in the days of globalization, this isn't a single nation's problem. This is a global issue, and we need to readdress the way we look at it. We are in, right now, on the paradigm, excuse me, shift of an opportunity. Unprecedented challenges give us unprecedented opportunities to revise how we live and coexist with the rest of the world. 
Yes. So we have to support each other, especially globalized economy, when all the countries depend on each other. Uh, so if something happens in one country, it can spread to other countries. So quickly. So if you, you, if we stop blaming others, yeah. So if we bro- stop uh, blaming others, we are in a better position to fight for public health. So once again, this is an, an, an unprecedented opportunity to realize that we are all on this one planet together and that, you know, yes. what we do to this planet's resources, our Earth, which supports us, we like to call it ecosystem services, um, we're destroying and breaking down the ability of the Earth to provide these services. So it truly is up to us. And we can also say that this pandemic will probably have a huge effect on addressing climate change as global industry and trade and CO2 emissions are being shut down simply because of the lack of this globalization. So we need to stay tuned and a lot more will be coming up on this program about the shift that we're going through right now. Um, What we can understand is that the world has changed and we can make it a much better place. So Peter, we are out of time for today. I thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great. And you've enlightened us and highlighted a whole lot of information and hopefully clarified a lot of misinformation. So I look forward to hopefully speaking with you again and more about your work and projects that uh, Humane Society International and you personally are working on in terms of these international dynamics. But uh, for today, we're uh, going to say goodbye and thank you, everyone, for listening. And meanwhile, uh, step out into your wild world and take a look at what we can do differently. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 